Well, let me ask you if you would to turn in God's Word to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are a lot of them throughout the auditorium and the fellowship hall that seats in front of you. And it's going to be there either page 848 or 901. John chapter 15. And I need to get there as well or where we are looking this morning in verses 1 to 17. And we're continuing our series through this mission discourse in John chapters 13 to 16. We want to go ahead and dismiss our children as well, by the way, grades 6 and below. They're welcome to remain in here, but once a month we have a special time for them around God's Word and singing uh, over in our building across the driveway. So kids 6th grade and below that are going and those who are leading you, feel free to go as well. And the rest of us in John 15, continuing our series through this mission discourse in chapters 13 to 16, uh, Trinity, Mission, and You, how the family of the triune God overflows with His love, light, and life-giving work in a world that hates Him. And this is our sixth message as we are now in John 15 verses 1 to 17. I'm going to read those verses. Let me read God's word as you follow along. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let me lead us in prayer as we look to God for his help. Our Father, 
You have revealed that your constant purpose through your spirit is to exalt your son, our Lord Jesus. And you've given your word, we know, for that very reason, so that we would see, that we would trust, and that we would worship all of your radiant glory and life in him. And so we pray now that you would open our eyes, that we would behold, that we would abide in, and that we would joyfully obey Jesus. And I pray that you would help me to faithfully preach the unsearchable riches of Him and all of those riches that you have revealed in this text that you've brought us to this morning. We pray this in His name for your glory. Amen and amen. Well, I'll begin with a question, as I sometimes do, and the question is this, just to think about, how would you summarize the essence of the Christian life? How would you summarize the essence of the Christian life, of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to live as a Christian? How would you summarize it? There's certainly a lot of possibilities of what we might say, such things as, well, to be a Christian means to read scripture, it means to pray, and it means to obey God's commandments. Or maybe we might say that it means to do good works, or it means to be a devoted church member, it means to love others and to be very active in telling other people about Jesus, and and there's probably a lot of other things that we might say as well. And all of those things certainly speak to important aspects of the Christian life. But in the passage before us this morning here in John 15, Jesus emphatically summarizes the essence of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be his disciple, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it boils down to these two very powerful words, abide and go, abide and go. The essence of the Christian life, as we see Jesus speak of it here, is to abide in Him and to go for Him. To abide and go. You'll notice in verse 4, as I read the passage, the very beginning there, the command, abide in me and I in you. And then down in verse 16, notice where he says, I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit. So there's the sense of abide and go that really is woven throughout the entire narrative that unfolds here with Jesus. And that's the essence of the Christian life, to abide in Jesus and to go for Jesus. We could also say, say it in terms of it means to dwell and to do. Or another way we could say it is it means to stay put and to get going. There's almost a paradox to it that we abide and that we go, that we dwell and that we do, that we stay put and we get going. Now as we're going to see as we move through things too, if we really understand and live In these realities of abiding in and going for Jesus, if we really understand that and live in light of that, beloved, we will open the floodgates of joy and fruitfulness in our lives. In fact, a massive implication from what we see in John 15 is this. If in your life as a believer, for those of you who have trusted Christ, if in your life currently you're experiencing joy and fruitfulness as a Christian, 
It's because you're abiding in and going for Jesus. And the opposite is also true. If you're currently, as a Christian, not experiencing joy or fruitfulness, to the contrary, if you're experiencing perhaps defeat, frustration, uh, maybe stressed out, discouraged, maybe there's anger and boredom and restlessness, maybe you're immobilized with sadness or fear or anxiety or just indifference, the reason is ultimately because you're not abiding in and going for Jesus in the fullest way. And so we're going to see that these, have huge, these truths have huge implication for all of us in our daily lives. Now this passage in John 15 has rightly, I think, been seen by many as really the high point, the pinnacle, the summit of Jesus' entire mission discourse in chapters 13 to 16. And it could also be said that it is the heart of what Jesus has to say. And it's interesting because Jesus in this passage really isn't saying anything brand new. But rather what he's doing is he's illustrating and he's reinforcing things that he has already said up to this point earlier in chapters 13 and 14. So he's really illustrating and reinforcing the points that he's making with his disciples, ultimately with all of us. And so what is happening here is that Jesus is giving a very clear call for his people. And by the way, near the end of chapter 13 in verse 31, he identifies his disciples, he identifies his people, he identifies we who belong to him as little children. It's a term of endearment, it's also a term of a reminder how dependent we are on him, little children. But the call is very clear, to abide and go. And that's his main point. And that's the main point of the sermon. Obviously, also the title of the sermon, Beloved Church, Beloved Little Children, Abide and Go. Now, what I want to do is move through verses 1 to 17, and we're going to see four different parts of Jesus' call as it unfolds. Four different parts. He gives an illustration, then he gives an exhortation, then he provides a motivation, and then he provides a commission. And this is all part, the components of his call to abide and go. He gives an illustration, then an exhortation, then a motivation, and then a commission. And so that's what we'll look at as we move through this. So first of all, part one, the illustration. It's very clear and straightforward. Now we know from the end of chapter 14 that Jesus and his disciples have left the room where they were with Jesus leading them ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's likely that as they're going, they pass a vineyard which supplies Jesus' illustration. And so he says, the beginning of verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here's the beginning of the illustration. Now, with this statement, this is the last of several I am statements that Jesus makes in this gospel. And these are hugely significant statements that indicate his divine identity. 
And when he says that he's the true vine, he's drawing on Old Testament vine imagery. Even as we heard earlier from Isaiah chapter 5, where God himself identifies his people, Israel, as a vine. But they were ultimately a false vine. Because of their rebellion and because of their unbelief, they failed to bear the fruit that God had intended. And so Jesus says he is the true and the fruitful vine. And he goes on to say, of course, that his father is the vine dresser. His father is the owner. He's the farmer who cares for and who tends to the vine. And then in verse 2, you'll notice that Jesus describes how the father cares for the vine. He removes fruitless branches and he prunes fruitful branches so that they'll bear even more fruit. Now the illustration, of course, is clear and it's very easy to understand. The vine and its branches exists to bear fruit. And this is what the vine dresser then works to accomplish. His goal is to produce much fruit. Well, then in verse 3, Jesus begins to apply the illustration to the disciples by telling them that they are already clean because of the word that he's spoken. Now, the word that he has spoken refers to the totality of his teaching which the disciples have heard and they have believed. And it's interesting that in verse 3, the adjective that is used there for clean is a form of the same word for the verb in verse 2 of prune. There's just different forms of the same word. So to prune means to clean. To clean means to prune. Now, what Jesus says in verse 3 is to assure his disciples of their standing with him and with the Father. In other words, they are counted as clean because they've received his word. They've believed on his word. But they still need pruning. That's what's implied and Jesus will continue to address that. And so with what Jesus says here, he's really echoing what he had told them earlier back in chapter 13. Some of you will remember this. When Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples and he told them in verse verse 10 of chapter 13, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. And then verse 11 there in chapter 13 goes on to say he was speaking of Judas, who was unclean, who ultimately was a hypocrite, who betrayed Jesus. And so he tells them there in chapter 13 that they're all clean, but they need to have their feet washed. And the implication as it carries over now in chapter 15 when he says that you're clean is that you still have pruning that needs to occur. And we're going to see how, how significant that becomes. And so Jesus is making the illustration very personal for his disciples. And he's speaking of spiritual truths. In other words, these aren't just lofty ideas somewhere out there. He's driving them home and he's going to continue to in their own hearts. Even as he seeks to do with every single one of us. And so in the same way, they were clean, but needed to have their feet washed, and they were clean, but needed to have pruning, so it is for you and I. 
And both the foot washing and the pruning, Jesus assures them that they are his, but they still have sin that needs to be exposed and that needs to be cleansed. And so he's working to draw them into a deeper dependence and obedience to him. Well, this leads to the next part of Jesus' call, his exhortation. So we see the, the basic elements of the illustration with the vine and the branches and the fruit. And he's beginning to personally apply this to his disciples. Well, now we move to the second part, his exhortation. And this encompasses verses 4 through 10. And again, the exhortation is very clear, very direct at the beginning of verse 4. Abide in me. It's a commandment. Abide in me and I in you. Now this straightforward command involves the mutual indwelling, the spiritual union that Jesus had already spoken of earlier in chapter 14. In fact, in verse 20 of chapter 14, in the midst of things that he's addressing with his disciples, he says to them, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's talking about mutual indwelling. He's talking about spiritual union. He's talking about this sense of abiding. But it's nonetheless a command that he's giving them here to continue to abide. That this is to be a priority in the lives of God's people to be abiding in Jesus even as he abides in us. Well, I've already alluded to what the word abide and what that concept refers to. It has to do with dwelling in, with remaining in, with staying in. And it's really another way of Jesus saying what he said at the beginning of chapter 14 when he told his disciples to believe in God, to believe in him with the sense of to continue to believe, to trust and keep trusting. For him to say abide, it's really another way of saying continue to trust me, dwell with me, remain with me, stay in me, be permanent with me. And so it really carries the idea of being consumed with, being obsessed with Jesus and continually and completely dependent on Jesus only as the source of life. To be totally preoccupied with him, that all that he is and all that he has done and that all that he has called his people to consumes our lives. That's what he's after when he speaks of abiding. It means to know him and to know the Father through the Spirit by faith, to know them in the fullest, deepest, most intimate of ways. In fact, in chapter 17, when Jesus prays to the Father, he says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they, his people, would know him and know the Son. And implied there is that we know them through the Spirit. So to abide means this deepening relationship, this deepening union, communion, joy, and the the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship as God has intended. And the force of this command and this exhortation is that it is an urgent and a continual priority. It must be for the disciples. He's saying this isn't just secondary in the Christian life. This is the Christian life. To abide in Him as He abides in us. And then in the rest of verses 4 through 10, 
what Jesus does is explains why this abiding is so essential and how this abiding takes place. And we'll just look at this briefly. He's explaining why and how this abiding is so essential and how it takes place. So, first of all, you'll notice why it's essential. He says at the end of verse 4 and then on for a little bit, he says, "As As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. It's an emphatic statement. Don't ever forget who he is and who you are, who we are in relationship to him. He's the vine, he's the source of light, life, we're the branches. He goes on to say, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. That bears fruit for the Father's glory. And so this is emphatic. There is no fruit bearing apart from abiding in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus is essential. Again, it's not just a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. There is no substitute for abiding in Jesus. Our physical bodies have to have food to survive. We cannot survive very long without food. There is no substitute for not having food. We must have food. We must have nourishment. And so it is in our spiritual lives. We must abide in Jesus. It is essential. There is no substitute. He's the one that we are to abide in and draw life from as the branches do from the vine. And we can't do anything. We can't bear fruit for His glory unless we're abiding in, drawing life from Him, continually trusting Him, continually depending upon Him, living in His reality, living in His glory, living in His authority and in His love and in His sufficiency, drawing everything constantly from Him. Now, Jesus heightens the sense of this importance of abiding by the warning he gives in verse 6 of the danger of not abiding. And don't miss this warning. He says, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And he's ultimately speaking here of eternal judgment upon false branches that don't abide in him. These are emphatic terms. And we've already seen other places, even back in chapter 14 and verse 6, where Jesus makes the emphatic and exclusive statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, he says, comes to the Father but by me. This statement is similarly emphatic. If you are not abiding in Jesus, whether you profess to be a branch or you don't profess to be a branch, uh, you will not survive his judgment. And especially it's a word to those who are professing Christians, but who like Judas show themselves to be a hypocrite, show themselves to be a false believer who maybe have close contact with Jesus, maybe close contact with Jesus' people, maybe do all kinds of Christian things, but in the end, demonstrate there's no real union with Christ. There's no real faith in Christ. There's no real dependence upon Christ. 
not truly attached to the vine. The word and the warning here is, friend, if that is true of you, unless you repent and trust Christ, you will eventually be exposed in your hypocrisy and God will destroy you eternally. It's a sobering word. The the word is don't be a false branch. Make sure you're abiding. Make sure you're seeking the Lord. Make sure you're looking to Jesus and to Jesus alone. So this is why this matter of abiding is so vitally essential. And this is all bound up within Jesus' exhortation. Well, then in verses 7 through 10, Jesus goes on to explain how this abiding takes place. What does this look like? What does it look like to abide in Christ? Well, it involves two things that are both driven by faith, namely prayer and obedience. Prayer and obedience. So look at what he says in verses 7 and 8 regarding prayer. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He goes on to say, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So demonstrate, so give evidence that you are indeed my disciples. Now, Jesus has already spoken about prayer back in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And he's going to speak of it again. He makes reference to it uh, in chapter uh, 15 here, down in verse 16. And then he's also going to say more about prayer in chapter 16. But this is prayer, and mark this well. This is prayer that is informed by and aligned with God's Word. And it's prayer that is informed by, aligned with God's word, that then leads to much fruit that brings the Father glory. And so it's prayer that is word-centered. So that's one element of how we abide is by praying in light of God's word as we continually grow in the knowledge of God and his word and his purposes and his person and his work and all that he has done and all that he's called us to if we belong to him that feeds and that fuels our prayers. And then in verses 9 and 10, Jesus speaks about loving obedience. The other component of how we abide by loving obedience that flows from and abides in the love of Jesus and the Father. Now again, Jesus has spoken about obedience already in chapter 13, in chapter 14, but he's reinforcing this. So he says in verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There is a God-ordained synergism that happens in our experience as believers. We know that God is the one that saves us, as Jesus will say down there in verse 16. He's the one who chooses us. He's the one who brings us to himself. But in the experience of our lives, the more we obey him, driven by faith, in connection with prayer, the more we experience the fullness and the goodness of his love. So there's this synergism. As we obey, we experience more of His love. And that compels us to obey and trust Him that much more. And and, and there's a way in which He's designed for us to continue to grow in that way. So we abide by 
prayer, dependence upon Him, and obedience that is fueled by that prayer and the faith that is a part of all of that. Well, I hope all of this helps us understand then the nature of the fruit that Jesus is talking about. Maybe you've been thinking about that. Well, what, what, what's the fruit? What does this look like? What, what, what's the idea with the fruit? What is the fruit? Well, it's simply and profoundly this, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. If we're dwelling in Him, if He dwells in us, if we're expressing our faith through prayer and through obedience and we're growing and knowing Him and Him taking up residence in us, that's what's going to be produced in our life. That's the fruit Christ-likeness. We persevere in depending on Him with faith expressed in prayer and obedience and we become more like Him. We come to know more of His love so we become more loving. We come to know more of His light and His word and all that He's revealed in His works and His words and, and that becomes to become more and more a part of our life as we speak more like Him and we do works of love more and more like Him. As we know more of His life-giving goodness and glory and love and beauty, that should be coming out more and more in our lives as well. We become a conduit, if you will, of His love, of His light, of His life-giving work in the lives of others. And the more we'll be doing His works, the works of loving others, the works of speaking His words, of bearing witness of Him. I like what the Puritan Matthew Henry said in this regard. Just very simply, he said this, quote, From a vine, we look for grapes. And from a Christian, we look for Christ. End quote. It's pretty simple and profound, isn't it? From a vine, we look for grapes. From a Christian, we look for Christ. That's what should be more and more evident in the lives of those who belong to him. Well, that leads to a question then. What is Jesus, what's motivating Jesus to say all of the things that he's saying? And and in our own lives as his people who belong to him, what should be motivating us? Well, here's the third part of Jesus' call. We've seen the illustration, the exhortation. Now the third part, the motivation. Verse 11. Very clear, straightforward. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is such an amazing statement with such deep implications for every single one of us. How powerful, how significant is this statement from Jesus? Now already near the end of chapter 14, specifically in verse 27, Jesus has spoken about his supernatural, otherworldly peace, which he gives to his people, to those who trust and love and obey him. We see that again, chapter 14, verse 27. Well, now he's saying that he wants those who know and trust and love and obey him, those who are abiding in him, To share in the fullness of His joy. The fullness of His joy. What is this joy? Well, it's a deep sense, a deep inner sense of delight in Jesus and in the Father through the Spirit. It is a happy sense of delight, of contentment, of satisfaction in the triune God, even 
and especially in the midst of suffering. It's not absent of tears, it's not absent of difficulties, but it is a deep, real, profound delight and satisfaction in knowing the triune God and in doing the triune God's will. We see this in Jesus constantly throughout his life and ministry. He was a burdened man. He was acquainted with griefs and sorrows, as we're told in Isaiah 53. And we see that in his experience. And yet there was this deep abiding joy that was even more fully looking for the joy that was set before him when he would be back in glory with his father. But beloved, that's the joy that he promises to those who are abiding. Again, I would quote Matthew Henry. He says, quote, The joy of a hypocrite is but for a moment, but the joy of those who abide in Christ's love is a continual feast. A continual feast. So I would ask you this morning, do you have a taste of that joy? Do you have a taste of this joy? You see, beloved, you see... Little children, as I speak to myself as well, for you and me, this provides a strong and a penetrating measure of how well we're actually abiding. Just ask yourself, do I experience Christ's peace? Does that be something that would describe my life and my experience? Do I know His peace? Do I know His joy? As I said earlier, if we really understand and live in these realities of abiding in and going for Jesus, we will open the floodgates of peace and the floodgates of joy and lasting fruitfulness in our lives. You can't miss that implication from this passage. And so again, if you're experiencing joy and experiencing peace, real joy, real peace, connected with Christ... It's because you're growing and abiding in Him and and going for Him and doing what He's called you to do. But if there is no joy, if there is no peace, well, there's the problem. It's symptomatic of the fact that you're not abiding in and going for Jesus. Perhaps the Lord even now is seeking to prune you so that you'll more fully abide in and go for Jesus. And so that you would know His joy and know His peace. And I'd encourage you, if that's the case for you, if you're a believer and you'd say, no, I don't know much joy, I don't know much peace, cry out to Him now. Cry out to Him now in your heart in prayer. Repent from whatever things He exposes to you that you need to repent from. Maybe things that are direct and explicit issues of sin. Maybe things that aren't sin in and of themselves, but they become more important in your soul than abiding in Christ and knowing and loving and delighting in Him. Cry out to Him. Repent from those things. Ask Him to cleanse. Ask Him to heal. Ask Him to revive and strengthen you in Him. And He'll do it. He'll do it. He's a good, gracious, and merciful Savior and Shepherd. He'll comfort you. He'll restore you. He's a Savior and a Shepherd who is for you. And He can heal broken lives. He can heal broken relationships. 
And he's going to heal this broken world. He's a mighty Savior. Abide in him. Cry out to him. That's the motivation. That you would have full peace and full joy. The peace and the joy of Jesus. Even within suffering and hardship. Well, this brings us to the fourth part of Jesus' call. We've seen his illustration, his exhortation, and his motivation. Now, verses 12 to 17, his commission. His commission. And this is where the go part of abide and go becomes explicit. As I already made reference to a while ago in verse 16. That's where it's explicit, even though the going is implicit in all that Jesus has been saying about bearing fruit. Now again... Jesus isn't really saying anything new. He's just reinforcing and elaborating on what he's already said. Especially his command to love one another in the same way that he has loved. Remember, he gave that command very uh, explicitly in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So listen again to what he says in verses 12 to 17, and I'll make just a few brief comments about it. He says, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruits should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And so Jesus' commission for his disciples, for those who trust him, is that as we abide in him, we also are to go for him to bear fruit that abides. We're to obey his commands to love one another. And notice that in verse 13, Jesus establishes his commission in the fruit of his own sacrificial father-obeying love in laying down his life for those he calls his friends. And he's talking there about his death on the cross, his substitutionary death on the cross where he will be the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, of all of those in the world who would trust him. He's talking about laying down his life as the Savior for them. And then he goes on to say, or in context, he says those who are his friends, as he speaks of them as friends, are those who trust him and those who lovingly obey him. Those who are abiding in him. He's speaking of all of us who would abide and go with him intimately as friends, not as slaves. In other words, this is similar to Abraham being called a friend of God in the Old Testament. Similar to Moses also being called a friend of God. And the point that Jesus is making with what he says of this, again, it's drawing in this intimacy of the relationship that we share as little children, as family members, but also as friends. 
And so he's affirming he's still the one in authority. He's still the one who's giving commands that are to be obeyed. But he doesn't give us cold, rigid orders like a harsh dictator. But he makes the Father's heart and his will known to us. And you see, beloved, that's why the Bible is not just an old, cold, mechanical policy manual. No, the Bible is the warmest, fullest, most life-giving love letter imaginable from God the Father and Jesus His Son through the Spirit to all who would receive it, to His friends who are also His little children. There's intimacy. There's a relationship in all of this. So beloved, what this means is abide in and go for Jesus. Trust and love and obey Him by loving one another in the local church so that collectively we can all the more fully and better declare Jesus' truth and love to unbelievers outside of the church. That's the whole point. And as you abide and go, trust and submit to the Father's wise pruning and cleansing in your life. This is the work of His loving discipline. He prunes those who are already clean and are producing fruit so that we would produce even more fruit by His grace. Maybe you remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 12 where the author of Hebrews picks up on this fruit bearing that Jesus speaks of in verse or in chapter 15 and there in verses 10 and 11 of Hebrews chapter 12 the writer says this for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness he says for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what foot washing is all about. That's what pruning is all about. It's the Lord's discipline seeking to grow us to yield more and more of the peaceful, joyful, we could add, fruit of righteousness. Well, you say, okay, fine and good. I see it, I see the text, I hear it, I, 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 I see it, I hear it. What does this look like in real life? Well, I want to close by giving you two different examples. Real life examples of what this call to abide in and go for Jesus looks like. Here's a couple of examples. One of them's from me, kind of a personal example. And then one of them is a corporate example from a local church. So first of all, personal example from me. Since the beginning of this last summer, in preparation for this series that we're going through, and some of you know this because I've shared this, I've encouraged you to do the same, but among other things, I've been praying specifically, Father, what do you have for me in the midst of what we're doing and going through this series? How do you want to change me? What do you want to accomplish in my life? And, and I've been praying that very specifically and very regularly. And I think I'm beginning to start to experience some of God's gracious answers to this prayer. And let me just tell you, I am like one of the original disciples, and like every single one of us, I am fundamentally a little child. A little child. I know that Jesus has loved me. 
I know that Jesus has saved me by no merit of my own, but purely by his sovereign grace and choice. I know that I belong to him, but I will tell you, I still get my feet dirty and they need to be washed. And it's actually dirt on my soul that needs to be cleansed from time to time, quite regularly, actually. I still need to have the Father's wise pruning work occur in my life, and I need His loving discipline. And I'll confess to you that for several months now, just being honest, I've wrestled with a lack of joy and a lack of peace. It hasn't been totally absent, but it also has not been totally present. Now, some of you know some of the circumstances that God has ordained in my life and in my family's life, and and things have been hard in different ways at different times, as I know it is for all of us in a variety of ways. But if I was honest, I'd just say, you know what? Generally, I have really wrestled with, with a lack of joy and a lack of peace. Again, not totally absent, but not totally present. And what that means, in light of our passage, is that I have not been abiding in and going for Jesus in the fullest way he would desire. Well, even this last week, in God's kindness, the loving foot washing of a couple of good friends took place in my life. One of them was my wife, my best friend. And they've been helpful in the Lord's kindness to help expose and cleanse some of the dirty sin in my soul. Now, I will tell you, my wife usually cooks my dinner and my other friend bought me dinner. So, you know, it came out good in that sense too. But, but an even deeper reality took place. Here's the deal. I'll just give you a little bit of detail. I tend to be a perfectionist. I tend to be a perfectionist. Which is to say, I tend to be an idolater. I tend to be an idolater of myself, a self-worshipper. Now, before the Lord and by God's grace, I don't think I'm dominated by this idolatry, but it is a definite tendency that I can fall into. And how it plays out is that I want everything to be perfect in my little self-kingdom of perfection. I want things to be neat and tidy and orderly, and I want it all to be perfect I want to be a perfect Christian. I want to be a perfect man. I want to be a perfect husband. I want to be a perfect father. I want to be a perfect pastor. I want to be a perfect student. I want to be a perfect friend. You get the idea. I want everything to be perfect. Very specifically, I can tell you, like as a student, some of you know I'm working on a doctoral project. Well, I want my project to be perfect. And as a pastor, I want to be a perfect shepherd. I don't want to sin. I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to let people down. I want to be a perfect preacher, preach the perfect sermons. I want to, uh, you know, have perfect worship services and on down the line. But here's the problem with this sinful and idolatrous tendency. You know what it is because you know me. (laughs) I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. But... When I let myself get caught up in trying to be perfect in all of these different things, what happens? Well, trying to manage and trying to compensate for my imperfections is a joy-killing, peace-killing burden. And joy and peace just, just evaporates. Because I'm not perfect. 
And so rather than peacefully, joyfully abiding in and going for Jesus, I've tended to become more focused on the weight and the burden of my circumstances, of my responsibilities, and of my performance within all of those things. And so the result is not good fruit. It's not joy. It's not peace. It's not greater Christ-likeness. Instead, I've wrestled with frustration, discouragement, anxiety, fear. You can just fill in a list of all kinds of things. But this week, the Lord, through my good friends and through His Word, even this passage I'm preaching in, He's very lovingly exposed these idolatrous, perfectionistic tendencies. And he's brought me back in his kindness to the simple and profound truth that I have a perfect Savior and that he loves me, not because I'm perfect, but because he's perfect. And he's given himself for me. He's laid down his life for me and he perfectly keeps and provides for my soul. And I can tell you, it's like cool water rushing over a, a, a scalding hot, hot iron that just begins to, to melt and to cool and to refresh. He's brought new peace to my soul as I've repented from these things. He's, he's brought new joy. He's put a new song in my heart because He loves me. And He loves every single one of us. Well, that's a personal illustration. All glory to Him. Let me give you a corporate illustration example, and then we'll close with this. And this comes from Sanibel Community Church on Sanibel Island in Florida. Some of you are familiar with this. This church in Sanibel Island is near Cape Coral. It's an area that seemed to take the very brunt of Hurricane Ian a few weeks ago. And the, the property of the church and the buildings, along with many of the members' property, homes, possessions, all of that, including the senior pastor and other people on staff, was totally destroyed. They literally lost everything. And I want to read a letter that came from the pastor. His name's Jeremy. Some of you saw this. I sent this out to some this last week. I want to read you a letter that he wrote just this last Tuesday. And it declares the, the reality of what it means to abide in and go for Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. So he says this, and he's writing to his congregation. He says, yesterday, which would have been last Monday, was my third trip to the island. I spent most of the day at the church with Teddy and pastors Barry and Doug, saving books from the offices and unloading food and water from Apache helicopters. And he puts in parentheses, yes, that part was pretty cool. He says, that was the high, but the low was coming. He says, Brian H., a new member at Sanibel Community Church, came by in the afternoon with a few guys and offered to help at my house. And so we spent a few hours hauling things out of my ground floor area for insurance pictures. All the stuff stored down there was ruined. Six feet of turbid storm surge fouled everything it touched. The seawater still filled some of our tubs with nasty brown putrid seawater. And then there's the mud. He said, Ian left a thick, gray, slippery, methodic sludge. Sliding around in that stuff feels and smells like sloshing in sewage. Maybe some of it is sewage. He says, and so we carried out my sodden, befouled possessions one by one for Teddy to, pho to photograph, and then we heaved them onto two great rubbish mounds at the end of the driveway. Pictures. Baby clothes, sleeping bags, mattresses, snorkeling equipment, a Keurig, suitcases, and more 
passed by in a funeral possession, pro, pro, procession toward the trash. He says, each item carried a memory and a story. Now my own hands hurled them into the heap. The lowest point came when I found a tub that sat on a cabinet just above the waterline. It was sealed tight and contained mementos for one of my kids. It was like a little ark full of meaning and hope, saved from the flood. While carrying it out, my foot slid in that mud. I banged into the wall and dropped the tub. It spilled and flipped everything into the mud. On the one hand, he says, it's just stuff. You can't take it with you. You can replace a lot of it. Losing things reminds us of Jesus' words that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. These are ultimately healing truths for the soul to digest. But on the other hand, it's still hard to lose things. Many of those items held meaning and memory. They're artifacts of one's life, and so tossing them feels like a death. And on top of it all, there's simply the sobering realization you don't now have anything. When I returned, he said, to my condo, a text came through from Brian H., the guy he mentioned earlier. It was a little bit from Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3, that says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He says, Here was a new member practicing the one another's by encouraging his pastor with the word of God. I don't have my stuff, but I have God's Word. I have prayer, and I have a body of believers who love one another and are serving one another sacrificially, both in word and deed. And through these things, I have Jesus, he says, who lifts me from the miry bog. As I reflected on my own losses, I realized that's where our church is right now. God has stripped Sanibel Community Church naked. We're in the mud. We've lost so much. We don't have very much at all to offer the world. We can't offer a beautiful causeway drive on Sunday morning or a cheery island campus. We don't have the historic chapel to use and and a cool youth room and all of this is now gone. We don't have lots of programs, lots of resources. We don't have anything. He says one hurricane changed everything. We've gone from a strong established institution to a refugee church in exile meeting in a building graciously offered to us by a three-year-old church plant. And today our church only has three things, three things. We have the word of God, the gospel it proclaims, and we have prayer and we have love for one another. The word of God and the gospel it proclaims go together. So we have that, we have prayer, we have love for one another. And he says in these three things, we have Jesus. Sunday night, which would have been a week ago now, was our first worship gathering since the hurricane. Our assembly had a fresh authenticity, intensity, and simplicity. You could hear the faith in the singing and praying, and you could feel the love as people lingered long afterward to talk and to hug. We had God's word, prayer, and each other, and that was enough. A woman came up to me afterward and said, Do you realize what's happening here? This is a room full of people who have suffered great loss, and yet they are praising God. And he says, That's what we have to offer the world. It's like the psalmist said, He's pulling us from the miry bog. He's putting a new song in our mouths. Many will see and hear. And that's how he ends the letter. Beloved church, beloved little children, Let us abide in and go for Jesus. 
that we might bear much fruit for His glory. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, these matters uh, really drive these truths home as we see it uh, lived out not only in individual lives, but in the corporate lives of your people. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Sanibel Community Church as they are still in the thick of all of this, that you would continue to supply in every way, spiritually and material for, materially, for their, for their needs. And we thank you for the testimony of their faith in you as they are very literally abiding in and going for you, even in the midst of, of loss that we can't comprehend. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes in each one of us, uh, that you would do what you desire to do in changing us to trust you, to abide in you all the more, to go for you all the more in bearing the fruit that you've called us to bear. And that you would be pleased to do that, not only in us individually, but in us as a church as well. May your will be done for your glory. In Christ's name, amen and amen.